shining a light on autism and life as an autistic person. Welcome to My Friend Autism, a podcast breaking down barriers, stigma and misconceptions around autism while increasing understanding and acceptance of the autistic community. And now, here's your neurodivergent host, Orion Kelly. Today, we are joined by an extraordinary guest, an internationally recognized, best-selling author, Josephine Moon, a passionate advocate for neurodivergent people, recently shared her own autism and ADHD identities with the world. And her latest book, The Wonderful Thing About Phoenix Rose, is a beautiful piece of contemporary fiction that features an all-autistic cast, a first for Australian publishing. Now, in this novel, Josephine shares her own experiences with neurodivergence, reflecting what it's like to live with these conditions in a world that often fails to understand them. Josephine, also a celebrated author of Ferdy Fiction, but today we'll be talking about her latest book and her journey as an autistic author. Josephine, welcome, my friend. Thank you for joining me. You are so welcome. I'm so happy to be here. And that is quite the introduction. Thank you. I feel very special. <laughs> you should. Well, thank you. Thank Chat GPT because I didn't write it. Um, let's start at the start. Tell us about your journey of discovering autism and ADHD. I guess how has it impacted you as a person and what you do for a living? Yeah, well, I think uh, like so many late identified people, it started with my child's identification, um, and then uh, well, and you know, and I had filled out loads and loads of the forms and I went back to the the clinical psychologist and said mm, I'm filling out like everything in here as well like particularly my sensory profile is really kind of off the chart like I'm I'm that person who is you know what is that noise where is it what is that smell what is that what you know I'm chasing down everything I can't get out of the house because there's some kind of grit in my sock somewhere like I'm, I am that person so my sensory profile is really 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 high and um she she kind of dismissed me so this was back in or so this is like maybe six, nearly seven years ago. And she sort of gave me a really hard look. And it's funny because she said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm an author. And she gave me this really hard look and went, mm, you guys are often a bit different. <laughs> I was like, right. And then she went, but your eye contact's too good. You can't be autistic. Right. So straight to the, the you know, one of the number one myths and uh, which is really disappointing that she clearly knew a lot about identifying people, but just for whatever reason miss that but she said bring in bring in the dad you know i need to see the dad so take in the husband and she's like yeah you're you're autistic and you're adhd and then so and then my husband kind of did nothing with that for for the time being he sort of just put it in a drawer and then we'd had a, a visiting psychologist coming because my son then had some funding he said a psychologist would come to our house and do some work and she'd been coming to us for years. She obviously knew me really well because we'd spent a lot of time talking. And one day when she was here, she just said to me, these are her words, I consider you high-functioning autistic. And I was like, what? Like, just really sort of, you know, because I'd, someone else had just gone, no, you're not. And then she's gone, yes, you are. And then it sort of just got left there. And so I sort of sat with that for a couple of years and then 
I was seeing another psychologist and I raised it with her and she was like, no, 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 you're not autistic. And she said, but I think you've got a social communication disorder. <laughs> I was like, okay. And then eventually I was like, oh, look, I need a full proper assessment of this. And I didn't do any research prior to that. I really didn't. I mean, I was very confused actually because uh, I'd been really indoctrinated by all the sort of stereotypes of autism and what it looks like. And my son doesn't actually match a lot of those stereotypes. And I was kind of going, I want him reassessed because he's not matching what the world is telling me he should be like. And so I did all that and they're like, no, 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 definitely autistic. And I was like, right, okay. And then I did my assessment and she's like, yeah, you're definitely autistic. And I was like, wow, okay. So that, that was kind of a lot of processing. The ADHD one actually threw me a lot more because my husband then went to, you know, look for medication to help him. And after he'd been seeing his psychiatrist for a while, he came back and said to me, I think you're ADHD. And I was like, you're absolutely bonkers. There's no way I'm ADHD because he's the, the quintessential tigger, right? He's the, he's the stereotype. He's the fast talking, fast moving, bouncing, bouncing, always on the go kind of guy. And I'm just like, I am exhausted. Like I am not this person. And he just kept saying, no, I really think you are. And then, yeah, like within, again, I didn't do any research. I just rocked up to the, the first appointment. I had written down some things I was really struggling with and said, look, this is what I'm struggling with. I don't know if this is ADHD or anything else. What do you reckon? And like five, with five minutes in, they were like, we're going to get you some medication. You're going to feel a lot better really soon. Like I was like, seriously? Like it's that obvious. So yeah, it was a really unexpected. I mean, it was both unexpected. The, the autism one, I was like, okay, that makes so much sense. That kind of explains my whole life. ADHD, yeah, that blew me out of the water. I never ever would have picked that, not at all. Mm. Yeah, I, I need to, I, I need to just take a beat here before we get back to the questions and just, and I guess just talk to you about how deeply your story resonates with me. Yeah, and you can interrupt at any time and and, and chime in. But can I say there's nothing about your story that isn't my story? Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I, my, my brain might not process that fully until tonight potentially, but there's like, that's one of the, I, th I even actually even think that's deep to me. Like there's nothing about your story that isn't my story. That's a deep thing, but it's really true. Um, Yeah. I've got a nine year old autistic son, you know, but for his diagnosis, um, I may have never known. Of course, prior to that, I just thought I was a, I was a crap person. I just thought I was a bad person or I was broke or no. I, I just, I actually decided to agree with myself that I was just born to suffer. That's actually yeah. what I thought. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but for my my kid, um, would it have come? And, you know, you're right. The From the GP referral to the first um, psychiatrist I saw told me I made eye contact too many times in our consult. And also I went to uni, so I can't be autistic. Um, so, you know, we're talking about modern day Australia and the, the healthcare professionals, you know, not all, but there's a large percentage that are, that are, that are significantly undereducated with modern day science. And that's an issue. Of course, I was lucky enough to then be referred to, um, you know, a, a psychiatrist that actually wanted to specialize in it and know what they were talking about. And, you know, after... They're pretty rigorous sessions, um, you know. You get you, you got a diagnosis. Mine was, mine was autism and uh, you know generalized anxiety disorder and socialized anxiety yeah. disorder. Um, but they were kind of like added bonuses. But it was it was it was very interesting because um, you know your experience. I mean, honestly, I don't know how much more similar it can get without being the same. Um, it, it really you know 
it really got me thinking. And right now you're talking to high-masking autistic women. Now you're also talking to some amazing autistic guys and some parents and carers and all that kind of stuff. But I know because they comment and they struggle and they think, you know, they're being told, oh no, you've got like personality disorder, you know, or oh no, you've got this or that. Um, And I don't think your story could help. Put your book aside, could help more people watching this right now than these undiagnosed potentially or misdiagnosed high-masking autistic women. I mean, your story is probably their story too. This is a worldwide issue. Yeah, massively, massively. And just, yeah, the, the gendered kind of obstacles that women face in this process are huge. And I mean, if I hadn't gone back, I would, like, I would have just accepted the first person who went, no, you're not autistic. I'm going, oh, okay. And, and had not then another psychologist gone, you're autistic. I'd still be just going, what? I'm the only, you know, typical one in the family. <laughs> and, yeah. and I'm not, but yeah, it's, you know, and women are trained, you know, from a younger age to be a lot more compliant and a lot more kind of, you know, you have to fit in with the social group a lot more. I'm not saying it's not yeah. hard for males. It is, absolutely. Um, but, you know, there's there's safety in numbers for women and so women need other women and there's that whole kind of extra, you know, you can't be too different because then you're, you're... You kind done. of get social training too, don't you, from your parents That's and your peers, more than we do probably. And yeah. I, I also, um, you know, read research that um, autistic women have a higher... Um, you know, a high degree of social motivation than autistic men for some reason, meaning that there's there's some sort of drive inside them where they actually do want to connect to some degree more than, which makes it even easier to come across masking, um, come across like you're not autistic when when you clearly are. But, you know, it, it affected me mentally very badly, the first initial consult that kind of just dismissed it. Did it have an impact on you, the first, the first misdiagnosis? Uh, I think I was very confused because... I mean, you, I couldn't deny, I mean, there's, so there's, there's a couple of issues there. One is, one, I couldn't deny that whole sensory processing thing is like, well, so what? Am I just going to walk away with I've got a history of <laughs> not fitting in and yeah. being bullied and uh, having anxiety and I have a what? Sensory processing disorder? Mm. We're just going to leave it at that. And so I was kind of confused, I guess. Um, and then, you know, being having been bombarded with all of the, you know, it's terrible. It's tragedy to have a child with autism. You know, all of that stuff we've been given over the years. Um, it was all just a very, very confusing time. And we had so much, actually, what was really surprising was we had so much backlash from other people over my son's identity, um, which was really unexpected. Like, it was like a time that was very confusing and I really needed support and I needed to yeah. be able to talk about it. And people were just shutting doors in my face. They were just like, don't believe it. My child's like that too. Like, just, just shut down, shut down, shut down the whole way. And it was yeah. just, it was really, it was a really difficult time there for a few years. Yeah. Yeah. The sensory stuff I can totally uh, uh, relate to, too. It's really interesting how similar, you know, like I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guy that's always like, what's that smell? Of course, my yeah. wife can't smell it. There is no yeah. smell. No, there is a smell and she'll finally work out. Oh, yeah. You smell the thing inside the other house down two streets down, you know, or, that's you know, what's the. He's always like, yeah. you're the person. Yeah. I'm going, what's that smell? And he's like, there's a nappy three suburbs away. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally, so I will find stuff in the house that no one else knew. Yeah. Or I'll be startled by sounds or I'll, what's that noise? What's that beeping? You know? Um, yeah. yeah. No, I, we're very much, we're very much uh, have similar experiences. So let, and, and you know what? I totally can relate to you to this idea that, you know, um, and I get, I get this on, on YouTube comments a lot. Um, yeah, you're not autistic. You know, my son, he's autistic. You know, yeah. he he has three comorbidities and, and doesn't speak. Well, no, he's non-speaking, but, you know, he or she has the potential to, 
you know, to still do things. I have different support needs. But anyway, so yeah, I, I totally dig what you're saying. Um, so you, as as an author, yeah, do you think that your personal experience of not being diagnosed at, say, my child or your child's age, but as an adult, late diagnosed, do you think that's influenced you in, I guess, in how you want neurodivergent characters to be portrayed as an author? Because would, would it be fair to say, for, as of the moment, it's done pretty badly. <laughs> Has it impacted, you know, your... Yeah, I think, I think I mean, yeah, un, un, unequivocally. I mean, for, to write a novel, to begin to write a novel takes a really long time. So you've got to be really invested in your story in order to stick with it, you know, for that long. Mm. So, um, and also, so I've got to be super passionate about it in order to sort of jump on it. But I think... Um, Yes, you're absolutely right. Historically, we've seen autism presented in a very, very narrow uh, band of, and a very negative presentation of autism over the years. I mean, we've got Rain Man, we've got, you know, we've got Sheldon, or they're the butt of the jokes, right? So they're the comedy value um, somewhere. Uh, and and it's almost always boys, and they're almost always white, and they're always, like, we have this incredibly, incredibly narrow uh, group of sort of stories to look at. And yeah, very much. I just thought, you know, we've started to see some some YA stories coming through. Uh, so stories written for young adults, teenagers, with teenage protagonists and some female ones. And then, um, but, you know, I looked around and I thought, well, I haven't seen anything in the adult fiction world at all in Australia at that point. Um, I know Holly Smale has one coming out in England uh, in April as well. Um, but yeah, we, we, we just haven't seen much of that. And it just, I think it was, it was so much for me that because it was such an overwhelming thing, it was such a huge thing, an overwhelming thing, a big thing to process. I found for the first time that connection with community with other, you know, your neuro tribes, so the other neurodivergent people. And that was where I learned every, you know, all the things that are relevant and important to me and to know that is where I've learned and how to understand myself and how to sort of get through life is from, from neurokin. And that was such a massive support and so important and such a protective measure, I think, that I just really wanted to celebrate that whole connection because as you have articulated, there is such a dearth of understanding from the people we think should know, doctors, psychologists, teachers, teacher aides, but I'm not saying all of them, but obviously there's a massive amount. I mean, the number of people who come to me and say, I was thinking my kid might be autistic, but I went to the GP and the GP said they're not autistic and just, and that's it. And that's closed the conversation, you know, like that's not an assessment. That's just this person could sit still for three minutes and look you in the eye and have a sentence. That's all that is. Um, Yeah. So I just really wanted to celebrate the strength of the, the neurodivergent community. Yeah, I mean, as an as an autistic content creator, you know, kind of advocating, I can. It's a daily battle. I, I feel like even though I'm putting out videos and I'm doing my best, you know, in my in my way. So you know, like shorts and videos and podcasts, I'm doing I'm doing it in my way to to help kind of educate and engage and entertain. I feel yeah. like there's no, I'll never be able to um, score it or, or 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 rate how I'm doing because it is it is so hard to feel like you're ever making any progress. Uh, you just need to, you know, have a kid in school to realize like literally that the clock stops every term just about and you're starting again. But yeah. I, I'm really intrigued. So, okay, so you, you decided I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to have a neurodivergent cast. I'm, I'm really intrigued about about this experience. So you're crafting a story with, the, with an all neurodivergent cast. 
Nearly. I get this all the time when I'm doing a... Yeah, when I'm doing a video, I get this all the time like, you know, I always try... I have to say I'm, I'm only using my experiences. I'm only speaking on my on my behalf. I find it really hard to... to, to, to I find it really hard to try and work out am I conveying the, in a wrong way or people think I'm talking about them. What kind of challenges do you have crafting a story with that in mind, you know, with a neurodivergent cast? It must be... Oh. I can't even imagine. It was so much... I felt so much pressure in so many ways and one of the, the biggest one that I felt was because this was this absence of this representation in adult contemporary fiction in this country um, or in most countries, I'm guessing, uh, I know that there will be so many people out there who want to see themselves represented on the page. And of course I can't represent everybody on the page. And my experience is very different to, you know, somebody of a very, of a different culture and a different country, a different gender, a different, skin color, all of those things, um, you know, I'm a very, you know, I love the term high privileging. I'm a high privileging autistic, you know, I've got a tertiary degree. I'm middle-class white person in Australia. Like we, you know, that's, that's high privileging. It's very, very difficult to even, as you know, to even get a diagnosis. Um, it's very costly. It's very time consuming. It's all of those things. Um, so I know that I couldn't, I know that people will be, will be disappointed because they, they're desperate to see, a validation of their own experience. I couldn't get all of those on the page. So that really was the biggest stress that I had about it when I just had to block those voices out basically and just write. And, and when you're writing though, I mean, I'm not writing about real people. I'm writing about the characters who come and that's part of the magic of writing. It's part, the part of writing I love so much is when characters, you sort of start going, oh, I'm going to have this sort of character and you sort of mucking around with them for a bit and then at some point they just come to life off the page. And when they start talking and I don't have to put words in their mouth, that's the beautiful moment, you know, for writing. That's the writer's high when it's just they're alive and I don't have to do so much work anymore. So, you know, they're very much their own characters. They're not, they're definitely not representative of real people. I mean, obviously Phoenix Rose, the main character being a teacher because I used to be a teacher, has, you know, a lot of my sort of teaching experience in her. But, you know, she's her own character as well with her own history. And, yeah, I mean, I don't even know that many. I still don't know that many actual neurodivergent people. So I couldn't draw from real people anyway. But, yeah, it was just, it was, I did feel a lot of pressure. And I felt a lot of pressure because it is a new thing in this country. And that can go either way. You know, people, if people are ready for it, then they'll pick it up and run with it. But if they're not ready for it, then, you know, I really have no idea how <laughs> it's going to fly yeah. out there. How do you reckon your experience as a teacher kind of influenced you, your portrayal of mm. of Phoenix Rose as a neurodivergent teacher? Yeah, well, because I think for me that whole experience of, of teaching is a really emotional one because I was really drawn to it because I, I genuinely love teaching. What I love, though is that I love planning. Like I love the creativity of it. I love the planning of it, being able to take information and breaking it down and, and, pre and presenting it in a way that people can understand and engage with and run with it. And I love working one-on-one -on -one with kids. And that just doesn't really exist in a school environment. And I absolutely burn out of there so fast. I mean, the sensory overload, I didn't understand myself, of course. I didn't have a clue what... Um, what that was going to feel like but the sensory overload particularly in high school because you've got like six classes in a day right and, and you've got 
staff and parents and as you're dealing with hundreds of personalities a day and you're talking almost non-stop and you, ne you never get away from the noise there is nowhere to escape the noise so all of that stuff burnt me out really really quickly and it was really sad I felt like a real failure actually of dropping out of teaching and I sort of did short bits here and there and I did a little bit in primary which is a bit easier on a sensory level but still just exhausting and you know I would dream about it in my head at night and plan constantly I just couldn't couldn't cope with that just just the constantness of it so it was sad and it, so it was nice to be able to envision you know like Phoenix kind of starts advocating for a potentially new vision she knows she's not going to get it now and the school system's not ready for it now but there is a potential vision there in the future that could be achieved with not a lot of effort really from the school system so yeah it was my chance to put a bit of a few seeds out there and hope someone picks them up and runs with them maybe I tell you, we talk, I, I have meetings with the school regularly, my wife and I, in a proactive way, in a really positive way. Um, but it's, it, really is, it really is such a minefield with, you know, yeah. with just having a nine-year-old. So I can, I can totally understand the experiences you've gone through. You brought up something that I have to stop for a second and just quickly reflect on. Mm. Autistic people, before they're diagnosed, they find a way to do a job. Um, mm. It becomes too much. They do get a diagnosis. And one reason or another... Um, you know, they feel like a, they feel like a failure, or they feel like um, you know they they they've failed themselves or, or or their career because it's something that they can't do anymore. I hear this a lot from from people like um, people go, "Why can't you do your job anymore? You used to be able to do it. Now you got a diagnosis, and you, you you know, and or why do you need these supports now? You need them before." And I think it's re it's a really interesting experience, and I think it's you know from my point of view, it, it's. It's a battle with people that don't care or don't want because they go, you know, how can it be possible to be one and then the next day, you know, you're, you're more autistic now than you ever were. You, do you know what I'm yes. saying? It's yes. a, isn't it a weird thing to reconcile? Incredibly, incredibly so. And, I mean, the reality is I was burning out of careers constantly. It was one of the, actually, uh, during my sort of diagnostic process, it was one of the, the clearest patterns my psychologist picked up was this constant, like, I did this career and then I burned out and I did this career and then I burned out and I did this and I just burnt, and it was just this constant, constant cycle. So, uh, you know, I've been trying to find this sort of perfect space for me, which is why it was kind of one of the reasons I was drawn to being a writer was because I thought, I mean, this is when I decided I wanted to be a writer, it was 1999, right? So we didn't even have barely the internet, let alone social media or anything like that. And so in my head, it was this great, I could just sit in the room by myself in the quiet in my own little world with these characters. And it was like, this would be the perfect, perfect job for me. And over the years, the demands on authors have just gotten higher and higher and higher and in terms of publicity and being like doing tours and being in front of people and social media and all of the sort of that sort of stuff, uh, which I find really hard to manage. Uh, and I, I find incredibly yeah. difficult, yeah, to reconcile that with, this completely opposite part of me, which is this quiet, introverted, I don't want to talk to anyone, I just want to sit in my room and write kind of thing. I think I've gotten way off track there. I do that a lot. Am I answering your question? Like no, no, that's good. I want to talk about I want to talk about the book with with regards to your passion, your your passion for animals. Correct me if I'm wrong, there's definitely a focus on horses in the in the in your past. I think I'm right in in yeah. saying that. But tell us a bit about your personal experiences with animals and how that's influenced your writing and some of the characters uh, in the book. Yeah, well, I think every one of my novels I have written in an animal character there somewhere because they are so important to me and they're just, they've always been the place I go to for 
you know, everything. They're, they're my fun. They're coming. There's cats sitting over there right now. There's always one with me somewhere. Um, <laughs> and I just had always wanted to really supersize it. So I guess, you know, stories always come from a few different directions at once. And one of them was definitely this idea of this, you know, neurodivergent teacher and this idea of community. But I have long wanted to write a road trip story because I just think they're really fun. And my previous book was uh, was kind of a road trip. It was a train trip that I did with my characters on the GAN from the top of Australia down to the bottom. And I really enjoyed that and I thought that was really fun. And so I thought, oh, yeah, I want to do a road trip. And then the other one was, you know, the animals that I really – I always thought, well, if I go back, right, this I know grasshoppering around, I'm going to go back to when I was le- uh, in year 11 and so I wanted to be a vet. Because I loved animals. Now I do know now that I could never have been a vet because I'm way too emotional, way too sensitive, and I'm I hate giving injections, which I have to do. If you have horses, you end up giving injections. I can't stand it. So I could, there's never going to be uh, a vet. But at the time, I was really kind of heartbreaking because physics and I back then you had to be able to do physics. Don't anymore. Physics and I were never going to get on, and so that quickly <laughs> was like, okay, that's just destroyed my whole dream, and I have no idea what to do. And my sister gave me uh, a book of James Herriot's vet stories from my 16th birthday. Uh, and I love James Herriot. He's the most incredible writer. Um, quite unfair that he's a you know, vet and a talented writer and all these other things. But he, um, he just his words, the way he portrays, you know, village life and animals. And, and I love little small, small village stories. I thought, oh, I, you know, I should be a writer, actually. That, and then I can write about animals. In fact, I can write about anything I want, right? If I want to write about the environment, I can do that. If I want to write animals, you know, you can just take that skill across so many different areas. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd always wanted to write about animals. And then somehow I ended up branding myself as this foodie fiction <laughs> writer. Uh, and I was kind of kept wedging animals in there in the story, but I still was really longing to write about animals. And I thought, this is my chance to just <laughs> super that whole love of animals and instead of just one one character I'm going to have heaps and I mean you know what could bring you more chaos more fun more disaster than having a whole bunch of animals on a road trip from Tasmania to Brisbane it's I want to talk about the road trip okay so your novel features a road trip it's a major obviously it's a major plot point now this is really interesting okay because you've talked about sensory stuff I have sensory stuff traveling and autistic people is not always great I've had horror experiences with family holidays let's talk about this please so um let's talk about how you approach how did you approach writing this part of of the story you know with sensory experiences of travel new environments you know that relate to people like yourself or you know neurodivergent people yeah, well, I guess that's a lot of that's just brought from my own experiences of travel over yep. the life, you know, my lifetime. And I am just, I'm a terrible traveler. I'm absolutely awful. You know, I can't sleep. I mean, my, my, it, really, it's amazing. I didn't get identified a lot earlier. Like my, my sleep kind of issues are so ginormous and they have to be so nailed down in terms of like, I can't sleep with anybody else. I've never been able to sleep with anybody else in the bed. Um, I can't, like, I've got to have blinds, ear, earplugs, eye masks. Everything's got to be still. I have to have socks on in case there's gritty bits in the bed. Like, just everything you can imagine has to be perfect. And yeah. if I get disturbed, I'm awake and I can't get to sleep and all that sort of stuff. So traveling's awful, you know. I can't sleep on planes. I can't sleep in cars. I can't sleep anywhere except in this, like, totally perfect condition. And even then I might get six and a half, seven hours, you know broken over the night kind of thing very so completely knew, similar to me completely relate completely yeah relate. so so i knew that you know a triplet this would be just 
horrendous <laughs> for someone like me with those kind of sensitivities and so obviously that's you know phoenix has that those kinds of issues as well and that just makes for so much um conflict and potential disaster yeah i mean yeah. it's funny because my wife and i have this philosophy it's like we so we only go on holidays family holidays for the kids we don't go on it for us there's no such thing as a holiday um for us or Absolutely. relaxation and yeah. and and also we 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 always agree that on on day one up till about day two or three, we're going to want to uh, book flights that day to go home and that's that, we're done or go home. And if we know that if we, we just push through, we'll make it to the end of the week, the kids will have an amazing time. They'll they'll talk about it for for months and months and months because that's what they do they over and over and over and over and over. Yes. Um, and, you know, and we'll we'll have done all we need to do. And we've just come to accept that, right? We've The expectations are gone. But when you look at it, when you break it down, it's it's it is it's like it's a story it's a book it's it's comedic it's ridiculous i mean literally every holiday night one we're both like that's it we're going home today we're going home tomorrow book some flights let's get out of here totally totally i have learned very much uh especially after having you know my son to just go you know the bar is just gets lower and lower and lower and lower every time yeah. and it's just literally my my baseline is can we can we sit in a car for half a day to get to somewhere? Can we sleep in a different bed? Can we eat some different yep. food? We have you know a few photos and a bit of this, and then we'll just go home. Like that's that's it. My bar is yeah. so low now. <laughs> yeah, there is no bar. That's right. The bar's been thrown away, and that that's. The- that's the thing, right? It's like, yeah, you, you do. You go, you get home and you go, oh, we have we have very little photos of this holiday. It's like, well, we can't do everything. It's like, at least the kids had fun. But yeah, it, it, you just feel like a failure of a, of a family or a parent to normal families that have these amazing holidays, these amazing pictures. And we're like, I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. a blurry picture of the dude on the beach. You know, it's like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I have friends that take their young kids on planes overseas. And I'm just like, how? Oh, yeah, no how way. does this happen? No way. Nightmare. Nightmare. Yeah, we're we're talking a couple of hours because we're in Victoria. We, you know, we liked we're talking a, a couple of hours, so that gets us to Queensland basically. Yeah, and that's that. That's as far as it's going. <laughs> so, yeah. And we're, we're and even then Queensland. We're talking like you know, cool and gadda. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tweed Heads, basically New South Wales. We're talking as close to Melbourne as it can get where it's still nice. Um, yeah, exactly. Hey, so you can uh, uh, over the boundary and go, we're there, we made it to Queensland. Look, here we are. We're done. We're done. Technically, we can walk to New South Wales from here, but still. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the only gluten free fish and chips. We've got to cross the road to New South Wales. Anyway, oh don't God, start me. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I'm gluten-free. Oh, my God. I've been gluten-free since I was 15. It was just, it's so much better now. But, oh, man, yeah, the food. <laughs> just hunting yeah, down. Yeah. My, wife, my wife's got celiacs and the, we have, you know, my wife has celiacs disease. But you know what? As an, as an autistic person, my gastrointestinal issues are just, like, horrific, yeah. which yeah. is very common. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't mind eating it. Whatever, man. Like, whatever helps my belly, I'll do the best I can. Now, you, your book, it really does talk about the importance of community and, and friendship. But how do you reckon these themes can be particularly important for, for us or, or for neurodivergent people? Because there's a disconnect there. Definitely. And, I mean, we know that community and loneliness, if you read the studies out there on loneliness, I mean, it's not just us at, you know, at all in the sense. Um, loneliness is a massive, massive problem across the nation. And, uh, yeah you know, the stats coming out on, on how big a killer it is of people actually in terms of their health and that sort of thing. 
So, you know, community is important to everyone and that's, that's good because that's common ground of, you know, themes and things to talk about there with community. And that's kind of the point actually that Phoenix makes a lot in this book is that this is not just about us, this is actually about including a whole, you know, everybody, giving everybody sort of more support because everyone needs more support. Um, but, you know, it's so important for, for us because we, we feel like, oh, I can't, okay, I'll speak for me. I, I have, you know, felt so different and so alone sort of most of my life. Yeah. And, you know, person that's never fit, yeah. fit in, you never really, I was thinking about this before and, I, you know, I never really, I did have, you know, a couple of times maybe somebody I would probably call a best friend, but they were, they were never like in school. They were like somebody who was out or, you know, they were a year older than me and they were somewhere else. Um, but that, you know, just that making friends and, and being so baffled by the sort of how people just form these, you know, really yeah. tight and reliable relationships and just, yeah, it's just so, so baffling. And so we do spend until we sort of understand our own identity and our own neurotype, we just feel like a failed, failed neurotypical, you know, we just feel like it just, yeah. We just a failure. We just fail, fail, fail. We're just not good enough. And and then you know, there's those horrible statistics on the number of um, negative feedback, negative comments that autistic and ADHD kids get over a year compared to I can't remember them, but it's like it's horrible. It's something like they get oh, yeah. twenty five thousand extra negative comments a year, kind of thing. Just you know, we're just constantly being told that we're wrong in one way or another. And so that you just start yeah. to feel like you don't actually belong anywhere. And so once you find that um and i'm one of these people because i'm not very good at making connections <laughs> i create stuff and then people come to me so like i'll start an environment committee and people will come to me or i'll start a horse rescue charity and people will come to me or you know so i did the same thing with autism of course i, I started running um autistic retreats weekend retreats and then people came and then i met people made connections with people and uh and now have an autistic friend which is like really exciting and it's <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah it is really very magical and i still just go i can't believe i you know actually made a friend as an adult and yeah it's just it is just such a protective thing because that's where you feel normal and you, you there are you know you get along and you make yeah it's just look i've lost my words on it it's just really it's incredibly important <laughs> obviously everyone wants to feel like they belong somewhere and obviously not every neurodivergent person in the world is going to be your friend but you you know when you find them that just and I guess, which I think is funny too, because you do often find that like my husband and I were both near, you know, both autistic ADHD. We didn't know that when we met each other, but we were drawn to each other because obviously we had that same, you know, just the same brain type that connected. And that happens a lot. You hear that story as well, that, you know, birds of a neurodivergent feather flock together and you just find each other. Yeah. So it's really amazing. Yeah. It's an amazing feeling. Yeah. I mean, I can relate, and I think you know, there's a lifelong feeling of of, of just not fitting in or, or something missing, your connection missing. You know, two operating systems not connecting. And uh, for me personally, I think you know, um, the the not feeling like you're um, fitting in or part of something for me filtered through right down to even my own family. You know, I almost felt like I don't know how this is. I'm this. We're the same. It's a. It's a. It's, a, it's not. Not that's not about your family. That's about me. Um, but it just. I. I I, I really struggle with those types of things. So I totally get what you're saying. It, it just feels like a disconnect. But I guess that comes down to um, what I wanted to talk to you about with creating this, I guess, a, a neurodivergent friendly society. From your experience, you've, you know, obviously you, the book looks through the lens, um, obviously, of a teacher, and there's, you've, you've obviously got your own experiences and your family experience. What, what do you think we need? What, what, what kind of changes do we need? What do we need to talk about to make 
to make this a more neurodivergent friendly society rather yeah. than just these kind of you know tokenistic yeah. awareness months oh my gosh yes i know <laughs> it's a tricky month april um oh my gosh i mean where do we start right i mean the simple answer is everywhere all right i mean i guess from a young person's perspective obviously schools are a major major source of trauma we know this the stats are there we've all got the experience of it and it's just doesn't actually take an awful lot to help i think so that's one thing so obviously you know institutionally schools are a major source of yeah trauma for kids we obviously need massive upgrades of uh, education for people who are on the front line the doctors the psychologists the teachers all everybody needs you know a lot of information upgrade and it's not their fault look i my first year teaching i had a kid um turn up in my class eight or year nine and um they just went oh you've got this new kid's arrived and um he's he's got he's got asperger's and uh he's got a support person with him and that like that was it right so it was my first year teaching i'd not been taught anything about kids with disabilities at all in my training up to that I, nobody in-house gave me any information about it there was no kind of education on how to work with a support person like there was just nothing it was just here's this kid and that was it right so did I do well by that kid? No, absolutely not. Because I didn't have any knowledge, any knowledge, any support or any training either. So, you know, people only don't know what they don't know because they haven't actually been given the support and the education training to know what they need to know. So there's that. The medical, obviously medical systems that we talked about. Just, oh God, where do you even start? The workplace, yeah. employment, they're massive, I reckon. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's everywhere, right? It's all, it's just mm. all levels. It's so massive, I don't even know where to start. But I do think... Often, artists, comedians, writers, often it is the arts that cut through all of those things and capture people's attention and reaches people who aren't necessarily looking for it. So that's the thing, right? So if you put up a thing going, would you like to come and learn about autism? No one's going to go to that. If you write a book that's engaging and people happen to pick it up and read it, then they've accidentally acquired you know, all this knowledge and that's a chance to sort of break yeah. through stuff. So I think arts are always right at the front line of changing uh, people's ideas about things. And that's really, really yeah. important. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they stumble on stuff on YouTube and that's that's how I get yeah. most people. I mean, it's just it's stumbling. I totally agree. I, I, would, I wanted to finish with what's your hope? What, you know, what's what's the impact you're looking for? What do you really hope the novel, we can break this up into, into neurotypical neurodivergent, but what's what's the, the impact you're hoping that the wonderful thing about Phoenix Rose will have on on the readers, neurodivergent readers, and mm. probably more importantly, uh, neurotypical readers who hopefully will read this and actually understand and get some perspective. What are you? What's what's in here? What are you hoping to to give? What experience are you hoping? I mean, look, as a as a professional writer, the first thing I need to the thing I have to actually focus on is creating a book that is entertaining. People want to spend time with the characters and they get to the end and they go, wow, that was a good read, right? So that has to be the top thing because I'm not writing an academic book and I'm not writing an official book. I'm writing something for entertainment. And yep. so it has to be, that has to meet that criteria first and foremost. If it happens to do more than that and people, and I know my books do because people do email me over the years and tell me how things have you know impacted them. If it happens to do more than that, if it happens to make them think a bit more, that's great. That, that makes me feel good, absolutely. 
but I'm also well aware that it's it's very early in in this kind of transformation wheel that we're on in terms of neurodivergent people being identified, recognized, supported, and it's very early. In ten years' time, it's going to be really, really different. So right now, I know that any of I'm planting seeds. I'm literally just planting seeds that may not sprout for another few years for people, but they're in there, you know. And ultimately, there's not there is no benefit. And I think I don't know how many autistic people would agree with me with this. For me, I don't think there's any benefit whatsoever in my having disclosed my neurodivergence. I get nothing from that. If anything, I get a backlash and and more people looking at me weirdly than they ever did before. Um, but the only reason I did that is to pave the way for it to be an easier world for my son to step into. That's it. Like I'm, I'm 47, right? Uh, culturally people were just like, whatever, you know, your time's done. Um, so it's not about me. I'm not getting anything out of this at all. This is all about him being able to step into a world that is a bit more ready for him hopefully a lot more, but at least a bit more ready and a bit more kind and a bit more knowledgeable than it was when we were kids. And that's really it. Yeah. I'm, this is, I mean, I'm, 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 I can't talk. I'm sorry. My brain's gone. I literally say the exact same thing in talks and videos. I, I, it's just, I'm blown away by the, the similarities. I mean, I literally say the same. It's like, uh, you know, I, my, I'm shot. I'm blacklisted. It's over for me. I'm done. I'm, I'm just doing this for my son to try to make it better for him and hopefully that'll help other people. I mean, literally what you said is literally what I say and have thought. I, I, don't even, I can't even explain to you how that resonates and how that makes me feel. Uh, it's, it's really amazing. I, I appreciate you saying that because, it, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm shot. My brain's shot, Joe. I'm shot. Um, it's amazing. We are, I can't believe the similarities. Yeah, I, I think people they feel seen, they feel they feel validated, they feel you know they, they feel like okay, I, I I found I found people. I think that's what's what's yeah. really amazing about it. But um, yeah, yeah, and everything think, you said. I think because so many of us like identified again, the reason they like identified is because our kids were identified, and so we know we've lived it. We know what it's like to go through life not yeah. being supported and recognised. So of course course we want the world to be better for them so i think that's yeah. a normal kind of thing to just go yeah you know what if i can change it if i can make it better if i can save him some of the pain that i had then you know great let's do it 100 yeah. percent uh, wonderful thing about phoenix rose josephine moon it's it's out congratulations by the way it's out now go and get it okay um Go and get it. Find it wherever you you find your books, presumably, and uh, I'm sure you I'm sure you'll love it. Uh, it's a it's a it's a fantastic read. I really do appreciate you uh, you hanging out, and uh, thank you so much for for being here. I bet you've reached so many people watching this channel more than I've ever reached in my whole bloody time doing the channel. So thank you so much. Oh, that, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. As it's just such it's just such joy to keep connecting with more neurodivergent people in the world so thank you thank you for doing what you're doing and putting yourself out there because i know it's not always easy and you're doing a great job you've been listening to my friend autism with orion kelly to join the conversation get in touch with orion and binge all the podcasts blogs and videos visit orionkelly.com.au